if you take this off of Earth, you actually have a much harder problem because you don't have infinite energy and you don't have infinite payload and you don't have all these things. So space shuttle missions, Mars missions, all of the things that are extraterrestrial habitats need much better energy management. And so part of the thesis behind NASA's work with us was if you guys can perfect this technology on the sustainable habitats that we have here, we can apply this capability to the things that we want to do when we terraform Mars and stuff like that. So it's a bit future facing, but definitely there is a theory there that this is going to be even a bigger problem in the future. Before any world changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. I'm Donna Laughlin, and each week I'll take you on a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. On this podcast, you'll hear from innovators from an array of industries and philosophies who imagined and are still imagining the future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. On this show, we talk a lot about sustainability, climate change, and a greener future. But today, we're going to talk about a $200 billion problem, energy waste. That's how much money commercial and industrial buildings are throwing away each year, an unneeded energy cost. And that's just in the U.S. Our wasteful habits contribute to climate change and also place an everyday constraint on the grid. Our guest today wants to challenge all of us to be more conscious. Mark Chung is co-founder of Vertigris, an innovative AI-based sensor technology that makes buildings smarter by reducing, tracking, and monitoring energy usage across physical locations. Some of their A-list clients include T-Mobile, Amazon, and Google, massive corporations with huge global commercial real estate footprints, and the universal pain point of massive utility bills. Combined with the need to drill down on their usage, this problem is huge. The platform can easily be deployed in hotels, hospitals, retail establishments, and even school campuses to reduce carbon footprint. A seasoned engineer, Mark's discovery was somewhat of a happy accident that pivoted his career for the benefit of his children. His first use case was quite literally in his own home. From there, he embarked on a mission to save the planet setting a course for the next generations. Growing up in a not-so-diverse Texas, Mark stood out as a child, not only as a first-generation Asian-American, but also because he was very gifted in math and science. Here's how it all started for Mark. I grew up in a small town just outside of Austin, Texas, called Round Rock. So you were like in the the shadows of the tech sector already? Was the boom already happening? It had not happened. This was like in the late 70s. Well, so I guess it was the start of a tech sector, but my uncle, who was an engineer for IBM, opened up a plant in Austin for IBM. And this was pre-Dell, pre-everything. But IBM was one of the big employers in that region. And my uncle moved there. Then he brought our entire family over there. And my parents moved there shortly after having my older sister. And then I was born in Austin. And where did your family move from? They're originally from Taipei, Taiwan. So what was it like to have, I mean, Austin is a really cool kind of hipster place when when it comes to parts of Texas. And Elon even wants to go there now. So 
what was it like growing up from the the mix of the big state of Texas and Chinese family influence? How did those, <laughs> how did those two intersect? Yeah, it was very different place from where Austin is today, but it was definitely a up and coming city. It was a capital city. They had a university, so there was an appeal for an international community there. There weren't a lot of Chinese people growing up, but there was a small community of people through my parents' church that I ended up meeting. Like every Sunday, you know, it was like the Chinese families that would get together from around Austin. So I grew up kind of with a dual identity, part of this very small Chinese community in Austin and a Chinese looking guy in Austin, Texas. So both of my parents studied accounting in Taiwan. They went to the same school. That's how they met. And shortly after my uncle brought my parents over, my dad started to teach himself computer programming and got a job as a software programmer through some help with my uncle. So trailblazers. I mean, it's like, you know, the Austin tech scene, you know, really percolated, you know, in the, in the 90s. And we're talking just before that then? Is that in the kind of the 80s time frame? Yeah, this was kind of late 70s, early 80s. So I just, I recall when I was really young, having one of the first IBM PCs that was available for consumer purchase. And my dad got one. He taught me how to, you know, program tic-tac-toe on it. So it was kind of, you know, he was a programmer. I was around computers and technology ever since I was a little kid. So what were your favorite subjects? Man, I guess it changed a little bit throughout school. So I think one thing, I don't know if it was like a product of just growing up in Texas or growing up around the Asian community in Austin, but I did naturally felt compelled to be in the math club and be in number sense and be in calculator contests. So all throughout you know, elementary, middle school, and even through high school, I participated in a lot of math and science competitions. And I excelled at them. So that was also an area where I started to feel a lot of positive self-image. But I did also really like English literature. And so actually, I had a really tough time when I was trying to pick majors because I had thought one part of me, which was a very Chinese component of growing up, was math, science, get an engineering job, you know, follow what my parents could, would advise. And the other side of me was very much a philosopher, wanted to study literature, wanted to write my own screenplays and books and things like that. So it was kind of an interesting duality I faced coming out of school there. What did you decide to study post high school? And what influenced you to actually do that? Yeah, I had this desire to do something very mechanical with like my hands. I wanted to be a mechanical engineer. In high school, started really like cars and just thought, oh, well, I could design an, an exotic car. I could design some like interesting mechanical things. But I also was really good at electrical engineering. And through just conversations with my uncle and with my cousins and my dad, I just felt like probably a better path for me to pursue was to start with computer science and electrical engineering. So I, I went down that after high school and I guess I continued on. <laughs> So you chose Stanford as your school for undergraduate and graduate. How was that transition going from Texas now to the San Francisco Bay Area and just footsteps away from like the HP Garage and a lot of the entrepreneurship programs? I mean, was that just like, were you like a kid in the candy store or what was that, what was that segue like for you? It's very surreal. I think something kind of like a dream come true. 
So the first time I went there, though, it was a very eye-opening experience. I remember feeling like this is the first time I've seen other Chinese people, like so many Chinese people, so many Asian faces. And I'd also gotten really accustomed to being one of the quote-unquote smartest kids in the classroom, always like smarter than a lot of my peers and excelled in school without a lot of effort. And then coming to Stanford, I think you just had everyone with that same mentality, same mindset. And there were so many more similar faces, you know, so it was looking back on it, I would say it was very transformational. There was a sense of a community, a sense of like-minded people all trying to do things that would change the world. So once you got your degree, what was your your trajectory for your career? Did you go out and work for a company or did you immediately go out to become an entrepreneur? Yeah, so I think growing up, my parents had a lot of influence on me. And even though I was exposed to like this idea of entrepreneurship, for me, my parents were very much risk averse folks. They were like, get a good job, work at a large company, you know, study hard. Someone's going to pay you for this engineering skill set you're building and developing. So kind of early on, my initial interest was trying to land a really good job at a company. And one of the first companies that I end up working for after school, which I was a company called AMD. They had just acquired a team of of a startup that I had been spending some time working with called NextGen. So this was an opportunity to kind of work with both a startup environment, but in the stability of a large company. So I was thinking that I was kind of getting the best of both worlds through that experience. But I think the entrepreneurship component of really solidifying that experience for me took place a little bit later. Within these large companies, were you seeing like a future opportunity? I mean, were you an entrepreneur in, with these larger companies, which is kind of a new trend? <laughs> I wish I could say that. I, I think for me, in that early part of my career, I thought of myself as just like an excellent engineer and that what I would think about doing was just climbing the ranks, you know, working through just being an excellent engineer, getting more responsibility, developing, growing through a corporate environment. I had not thought of myself as like starting a new initiative or an entrepreneur at any um, big company. I was just sort of thinking, how do I become the very best engineer I can for AMD? Gotcha. So 10 years ago, you had some form of epiphany that you're going to tackle a really big problem. And then it's the $200 billion energy waste problem. Let's Talk about that. What job did you have at that point that you were willing to leave and maybe disappoint your parents for a moment to go out and be a crusader and address this energy waste problem? Yeah, I was a senior, I guess, director of engineering at a publicly traded company called NetLogic Microsystems. It was a pretty high paying job. We had just gotten acquired in the public market, so like $4 billion acquisition, the largest Broadcom had made at that time. And it was a pretty senior engineering position. But leading up to that, actually, I was at a startup company that was funded by Steve Jobs to do chips for Apple. And that company had gotten acquired. And then I had joined a very early stage company that eventually merged with NetLogic and gotten to this size. So by this point in time, I had started to think, I know a little bit about how to start a company. I know a little bit about the stages of formation of a company. I know a lot about technology and technology development. And I started to think at that point that whatever I'm doing next, it can't just be pursuit of a career because I don't need that. That was not 
providing any level of fulfillment. And it was it was also around the time that my son was born that I started to think, what is the impact I'm going to have on this planet? How am I going to contribute everything that I've put into my life now, all the work, efforts, skill sets? How am I going to use that to contribute to his generation? And that's where the culmination of all of those experiences said, if I'm going to be a role model, the way that my parents were a role model for me or my dad was a role model for me to my kids, I couldn't be just a bystander watching climate change erode when I have the ability to develop technology that could change that trajectory. And so I think that, you know, conspired to make me take the plunge. Well, you went from large publicly traded companies to the, the entrepreneurial environment, which is a great transition. When you became a father, do you think that your values changed the way you looked at the world as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah, in very profound ways. I think prior to that point in time, I well, maybe am a bit embarrassed to say that I was a bit more self-centric, more centered around wealth, the pursuit of prestige and position, title, power, money, whatever. I think there's some sort of classic things that I think were instilled in me from a cultural perspective that I should be doing this. If I'm going to be a good son, I should be getting a good job, getting a lot of money, making sure I take care of my parents, all of those things. And when I had my son, there was a very weird, maybe not weird, but a mental transition where I didn't care so much about what happened to me as much as I cared about what happened to him and their generation. And that extension beyond myself, I think, started to really shape how I viewed all the things that I was doing. Well, and also the convergence of things of happening, right? So your family values, cultural values, and then you have the Silicon Valley itself has its kind of own set of values, I think, sometimes. You know, if you're looking on the outside in, and all three of those, they were all playing in some form of, you know, universal power, right? So let's talk about energy now, because you decided to take on this really big problem, $200 million energy waste. And for the well-being of, you know, of, of the integrity of your next generation, including your son and, and your family, you also recruited your brother. So how did you, I just metamorphosis this think about why you were taking this on, what was your, your brother doing? And then the, how did you actually recruit him to quote, be part of that almost family business? Yeah, that was uh, actually really hard. So Thomas, I don't know, for, for whatever reason, maybe because of the same cultural upbringing, he was on a path to a significant career advancement. Um, and he was making, you know, a ton of money. And I was just thinking to myself, how do I convince him to jump ship and help? But I think growing up, Thomas was someone that I leaned on really heavily as someone I would just like trust with his capacity, his capability. And in the beginning, getting started, I was like, I need a couple of people that I can really trust that'll just help get things done. Get us past this initial hurdle of all the things that we need to get done and we just need to build. So he and I, we had never worked like formally together, except as one time he had interned at AMD, but we had not worked formally together. And we just both thought it would be an, an exciting opportunity to blend our two skill sets. And after he got his first big acceleration vesting component, then he was like, okay, I think I'm ready. So what was that conversation like when you told him that 
you're going to take on this challenge and then recruiting him. And did you have that thought in your head going, what are our parents going to think? Or was it like, we're going to convince mom and dad that we're like superheroes in a sense, we're going to take this on. Like, what was that conversation like? And how did you go from that idea to then applying that idea and getting funding and all the other alliance stuff that you need to get things rolling? Yeah. So having the conversation with him was pretty straightforward. It was like, hey, Thomas, we're going to do this thing. Do you want to work with me on it? And he's like, yeah, sign me up. Talking to my parents about it was an interesting conversation. My dad was, he's always been super, super supportive. He's like, look, if you guys want to try it, give yourself some time, go for it. You know, like you've both had some successes. You both have some savings saved away. Take the time to explore what this looks like. And I'm, I'm proud that my sons are going to work on something cool. And my mom was a totally different story. She was like, how could you guys give up such good paying jobs to do something that's so risky and so crazy? Like, this is stupid. Don't do this. <laughs> so, so dad's saying you can have the keys to the car and mom's saying, no, you're not ready to drive, basically. Uh, yeah, exactly. But, you know, I think with my dad, I guess my dad has always been more of the figure that we lean on for kind of decisions like this than my mom. And so... For whatever reason, we went against her wishes <laughs> and we did it anyway. And then the other part of your question about early days, how did we get it started? So it wasn't so difficult having come off the backs of like a company that just sold for like $4 billion and Thomas had sold his own company and John was joining us that we were sort of like these hotshot engineers from Silicon Valley. And in that period of time, it was not difficult to raise like the first amount of money. We'd also enrolled in a, an accelerator program called Stanford Stardex, which was also, you know, well-known accelerator, very prestigious. So the early days were really easy, getting money and funding a bunch of hotshot entrepreneur guys to get going. There was a little bit of learning curve on like how to raise money, but once we had established that, it was pretty easy given our background and our track record. Mark and his brother Thomas and their co-founder Jonathan Chu created the energy management platform Vergicus in 2011. Their proprietary solution starts with attaching IoT sensors to all the appliances, peripherals, and large-scale systems on the network. Data from these sensors is then analyzed using algorithms and AI that learn the uses patterns over time, so adjustments can be made for energy and cost savings. A dashboard makes everything simple and transparent for clients. The problem you're tackling is huge, but let's define what it is you're actually solving. Who needs your solution? Yeah, so that's been a big evolution. But I would say in the beginning, we had just a very unique insight that every electrical device inside your building is consuming electricity, potentially wasting electricity. And most people have very little understanding of where that energy is going. You can't get it from a PG&E bill. It's not like your cell phone bill. You can get like an itemized list of every single thing in your house and know exactly what it's consuming. It's like a black box. So one of the early insights we had was we could take this connected sensor and we could sample the electricity and figure out everything in your house without needing to go in. So like building an x-ray into your house. And so that at the beginning was sort of the thesis behind, okay, now we can figure out energy, we can figure out where it's going, who has problems that need to understand this energy. And as we sort of dug into it and developed it, over time we learned that it's a pretty universal problem, which is also part of the challenge is that where are we going to focus our time and energy first? And we chose 
to spend that time and energy on the most mission critical enterprise centric businesses that are out there. So that's like T-Mobile, Amazon, Google. That's where they have really big real estate footprint, really big energy footprint, and the same universal problem of not being able to understand and manage where that energy is going. And so we're all familiar with like artificial intelligence in our home and our cars. How did you kind of just stand back looking at the problem, discovering the problem? Like what happened that led you to this discovery that this is being ignored, or maybe it's maybe not being ignored, but maybe it's just not being addressed in the right way. I mean, you literally turned the lights on and realizing that this industry is is not addressed the problem. Yeah, that was that was a startling discovery. I think energy is one of those things that you generally take for granted. You don't really think about on a day to day basis. You turn the switch, the lights come on. You know, and not a big problem. The wake up call for me was getting a really big energy bill from PG&E. You know, it was in my house and I'd been living there for a while. So I gotten used to like a normal energy bill, something like a hundred bucks. And then one month I got a really big energy bill, like $600. And that's when I was like, what is happening? You know, that question in my mind of like, there's gotta be some kind of mistake. Someone made a mistake. Let me figure out what's happening. And then when I started to dig into it and peel back the layers, I was like, okay, it's not that the utility says it's not their problem. And they just installed these pg e smart meters and they say the data is accurate. Well, let's just take a look and let's see what happens next month. And it was the same problem. And I was like, okay, well now let me just dig in a little bit more. What are the likely suspects? Is it my refrigerator? Is it my garage door opener? Is it like someone's computer on doing something goofy at night? So I started to plug in these little meters that I could buy at Home Depot and just start recording the information and scribbling it down and just try to figure out where it was going. And uh, we ended up just frustratingly, I had invited John over on the weekend to try and work on this project with me. And we just frustratingly could not find anywhere that this energy was going like crazy like this. And John is one of your co-founders along with your brother? Yeah, exactly. John's one of our co-founders. He was someone I was working very closely with at work. And on the weekends, we'd spend time, you know, doing various projects together. And this one was about trying to figure out what's going on with my house. And we came up with this idea. What if we just took it straight out of the meter? And we had been working on a packet inspection algorithm that could essentially take all the information going from a single point and try and see the pattern of energy information going in and out of that single point to try and figure out what is happening at that one place where this is the only other place that's feeding the meter where the utility information could be bad. And that's how we sort of came to this realization that all of these devices in my house were actually speaking a language that AI could understand. We just needed to figure out what it was saying. And I think what was an epiphany for me was that even though people had tried to do this before in the past, no one had been doing this for the utility meter. Maybe there was a couple of people publishing papers on it, but no one had been working on it. And I think, okay, well, maybe that's just because in the residential market, nobody really cares about energy. It's too small. It's but commercial buildings got to have a solution. Industrial buildings got to have a solution. So we started reaching out to people in our network, talking to people, learning about the problem and spending a lot of time. Like I met some folks at NASA and they were working on this state-of-the-art building in NASA. It was like the highest performing building in all of NASA's or the entire federal government's like portfolio. And I was trying to talk to these building engineers that were working there and asking them how they're solving these problems or how they're looking at energy. And it was just surprising that even in 
the highest performing building with an unlimited budget to try and try and solve this challenge, there was no technology there. And that's when it was like, whoa, this is a place that's completely untouched by technology. Nobody's have tried to solve this problem before. Like, why is that happening? This is like the biggest problem facing humanity. So what was NASA's response to that? And what's your relationship with them now? Well, NASA's response to that was like, if you guys are working on some technology here that can help us figure out where energy is going, sign us up. We want to work with you. So we created a, a Space Act agreement with NASA, a collaboration partnership that exists to this day. And we started co-developing capabilities using their facility as a living laboratory for our technology. Is that just for Earth? <laughs> as, as we evolve <laughs> and we start going to space and other places, the energy problem that we have on Earth going to transcend to other places? It's a great question. Actually, Earth is one of the places where there's actually not a restriction on how much energy we can produce. It just turns out that some of the energy that we produce is really bad for the environment. So that's why I think people want to manage and monitor energy. But what actually drove a lot of that Space Act agreement was that if you take this off of Earth, you actually have a much harder problem because you don't have infinite energy and you don't have infinite payload and you don't have all of these things. So space shuttle missions, Mars missions, all of the things that are extraterrestrial habitats need much better energy management. And so part of the thesis behind NASA's work with us was if you guys can perfect this technology on the sustainable habitats that we have here, we can apply this capability to the things that we want to do when we terraform Mars and stuff like that. So it's a bit future facing, but definitely there is a theory there that this is going to be even a bigger problem in the future. Hey there, it's Donna. I want to invite you to go check out some of our past conversations with game changers and innovators who are shaping our future. Like fifth generation farmer, Carlo Mondavi, who's combining his family's winemaking legacy with smarter, greener, autonomous technology at Monarch Tractor. Right now, turning on one diesel tractor is like turning on 17 cars. And so even if we are farming organically or regeneratively or biodynamically, we still have that carbon footprint associated. So at bare minimum, we want to be able to mitigate that for the farmers that are already protecting their soils in such a beautiful way. And for the farmers that want to get away from the chemicals, we want to be a solution for that too. I learned something, actually a lot of somethings, every time I talk to a new guest. They're pioneers. They're thought leaders in their fields. They all have inspiring stories to tell, and I share them with you every week. So if you're enjoying these episodes, please hit subscribe and join me for more stories about the moments before it happened. So how do you get, when you have a conversation, to adapt and, and put your infrastructure in place? Who is it you're talking to? Is it the building management? Is it operations? Who's responsible for making these big decisions to you know, be smarter about our energy footprint? Well, today in the enterprise, I think it's really the intersection of three teams, which is a little bit of the challenge. Part of it is the sustainability team. And a lot of the progressive companies that we talk to and work with today, there's a group of folks that are dedicated to trying to understand energy holistically across their entire organization and are faced with the gaps that are occurring in this data set. And they don't know how to solve that. They don't know how to address that. So part of the group that has the largest problem is the sustainability groups that are doing reporting, they're doing kind of carbon measurement, carbon procurement. 
So that's one group that we spend a lot of time talking to. They champion the adoption of our technology. Two other groups that we spend time with are the operational teams that are running these buildings. So each of the buildings has like a team that does some things. And they're not really incentivized to save energy or reduce energy or adopt new technologies. Their number one thing is like, as long as no one's complaining about the building and everything is working, that's our job. Just making sure everything's working. But we have to work with these folks because some of them really do want to do a better job being more operationally efficient or saving some money. But they're just not, you know, incentivized to do that so well. But if you can provide a capability for them to do so and someone else is is championing it, they'll support it. And, And the last person that we talk to is usually someone in the IT department who has to, like, connect the dots between all these different organizations and connect the technology layer. And the fact that we're doing something kind of unique from a technology perspective. They always want to be able to buy into what we're doing and provide that level of oversight. So those are big discussions. And what type of data do you show to get them excited to say, this is what your cost savings could be? And what can the cost savings be? Well, I mean, we show them lots of different kinds of data. I mean, we show them their carbon footprint. We show them the energy utilization across all their buildings. Show them that at a granular level, like which equipment is consuming what, how much is going into lighting, how much is going into parking, how much is going into et cetera. There is an opportunity generally with almost every single time that we show data that something could be done differently or more efficiently and those savings from a, a manual perspective, there's, you know, in some cases upwards of like 40, 50% energy savings. What we generally try to, to do, because getting to that level of savings from just looking at data means someone's going to have to start doing a lot of different things. And what we generally try to do if we're trying to get a customer some value proposition that's tied to energy savings is we want to figure out how to automate it for them. So usually that means we're focused on their HVAC systems and we're usually trying to automate something about their HVAC systems to tune and improve them. So individual building operations, these enterprises that you mentioned, you know, they're major, you know, the Fortune 500 companies, but there's also challenges within metros and states. Like California, we have, you know, we've had blackouts, we've had fires, we've had other things that are, you know, related to climate change. Even Texas had, The lights went out in Texas, right? It was a really big thing back in your home state. Is that conversation different in going from private enterprise to like government and policymakers? What kind of influence do you have there? It's connected in a way. There's definitely a policy conversation to be had around the buildings that we go into. The difference is one of them is like a policy conversation around how to create the right incentives and the right alignment of structure that allows customers and companies to adopt this technology and to advantage their ecosystem with it. So one of the things that we're doing now, as an example, is some of the buildings that we have in our portfolio today are fully automated. And that full automated building, actually, when you tune that to time it with the grid, allows us to remove energy from the grid that could come up in times when the energy is really polluting. So, for example, in California, we have a lot of power that gets produced that's very clean from you know 9 a.m. to approximately 4.35 p.m. And then it gets really dirty starting from about 5.30 to about 8 p.m. And it turns out if you can time the load of these buildings to when the grid is cleaner, for example, cool the building down 
at you know two to three o'clock or cool the water at two to three o'clock and then shut down those cooling systems from like 5.30 to eight, you can actually save dramatic amounts of carbon out of the grid. And it doesn't just necessarily translate into any real energy savings for the companies because they're just moving energy around, but it's a huge impact to the grid and a huge impact to policymakers' goals on carbon. So the conversation we're trying to have now is like, how do we create the right policies and structures to allow this kind of technology to have an impact on the grid? Where are you making the most strides or most influence in, in setting those policies? Is it local, federal, or what level? I think there's definitely policy influence at all levels, you know, state, local, and even at federal, where we see, you know, pockets of progressive action tend to be on the local, municipal, and in certain specific regions where you can really move the needle in a small enough group, in a contained enough group with enough regional support. And that we've seen a lot of like policy mandates around reporting, policy mandates around buildings of a certain size need to have this level of information. That actually has a huge impact on trying to understand the nature of the problem. So that first step of like measuring before you can manage, that policy is having a lot of impact. And soon, I think it will start to happen at the federal level and hopefully more internationally. Well, and look at what's happening with the ESG, right? That's becoming much more of a priority for companies as well. So as ESG gets to be more of a, I wouldn't say a mandate, but more of a priority for companies, are you seeing that factor into your conversations as well as, as companies that are having an ESG policies in, in place and following the compliance there? Is that also helping you facilitate? Yeah, definitely. I think in the recent last two years and some of the new things like the SEC's proposed reporting requirements on scope two carbon emissions, those kinds of policies and the compliance and the company emphasis on it has really elevated the conversation of energy management. And it's something that was like a more like a nice to have thing that you would have in back conversations with operators of specific buildings. Now you're having it at a very strategic level with the execs of these larger enterprises and developing a more comprehensive strategy across how they do it unified across their entire portfolio. So definitely seeing the big impacts of that happening across our customer base. Yeah. And as the boomers begin to retire and we get the millennials that are kind of running, then the disease come along. What is your message to, I'm doing calculation, is your son about 10 years old now? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So if you were sitting in a classroom in the future, next generation, and having this to be, your son probably is, is pretty knowledgeable on this. What would your message be to the 10, 12 year olds that are just getting ready, starting to think about what they're going to study in the future? How do you get them to embrace that because the next generation is going to be pushing this to the next level. You know, I think I'm sitting from a lens of observing how my kids' classrooms are and how they interact with their teachers and the level of conversation around being good stewards of the environment that's happening already at like throughout their school. Maybe that's partly that they're in a very progressive school. <laughs> I'm not sure, but my message would just be that everything in the world is sort of interconnected and we have a responsibility as part of that interconnection to measure what we are doing and how does it impact everything else. And if you can see that relationship, if you can really understand that relationship, then you really have no choice but to think about how to be a good steward or citizen for the environment because it's going to impact you regardless. You can't just 
take a bunch of coal out of the ground, burn it up and make it someone else's problem. It's just going to be our problem. I think kids this generation really get that. One last question. What does your mom think about the, you know, this vision that you and and John and your brother set out to accomplish? You know, on the one hand, she sees what we've done and she sees like that we're working hard and that people are buying our technology and we have customers, really big, high profile customers. So on the one hand, she's like very proud of what we're doing now, I think. On the other hand, though, she is from a part of Texas where she spends a lot of time on the other side of the aisle listening to a lot of talk radio that talks about the fakeness of climate change. And so she doesn't exactly believe everything that we're working on. So that's that's a still a, a difficult conversation to have with her at times. <laughs> so what's that counter message then that you want to make sure that people who might be influenced by that to really wake up and understand that maybe they're getting the wrong message? I wish I knew what that counter message would. I, I guess it would be that I think everyone wants a good world. And I think being an environmental steward is not a political thing. It's There's no left or right message around the idea that if you're doing something right for the environment, it's good for everybody. So I would just try to say that this isn't a leftist woke thing that climate change is happening. It's a real observable phenomenon backed by a lot of science. And it is something that we all have to be mindful of and work towards. And I guess I don't know have a better message than that. In the end, what is more important, cost savings or compliance? The answer is both. Thanks to Mark Chung and his dreams, some of the most progressive companies in the world are monitoring and adjusting their energy footprint, eliminating waste. In previous episodes, we talked a lot about sustainability and the importance of protecting our natural environment for the good of all. Our conversations have covered the gamut from the UN Sustainable Development Goals to finding alternative energy sources for mobility to ESG investing. We believe, as Mark says, when you're doing something right for the environment, it's good for everybody. Thank you for listening. Follow Before It Happened on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Susanna Camp, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Labs.